Hi, it's Rabbi Jim Egal. I want to thank you so much for joining me. In this podcast, I'm going to uh, go through my Rosh Hashanah morning sermon, and we're going to do a talk. We have to talk about a lot of things that are really pressing right now in the Jewish world and the things that are confronting, um, particularly the situation in the Middle East and how that's playing out at home. It's uh, not an easy time, and yet, uh, in as much as I gave this sermon on Rosh Hashanah, for some reason, here, three weeks later, it seems to be almost just as uh, relevant and uh, has something to do exactly with uh, the recent headlines. You can always email me at rav is in Victor, jim at aol.com, or you can always call me at 610-624-3441. I would love to hear from you. A Jew and an Arab walked to bury their father. Their deceased father had mistreated both sons, but both put aside his emotions to honor their father. This is the story of the abandonment and abuse of Ishmael and Isaac, the traditional texts read on Rosh Hashanah. Abraham must decide between Hagar and Ishmael, or Sarah and Isaac. And Abraham sends away Hagar and Ishmael. Ironically, by the end of these two chapters, Abraham has lost both his wives, both his sons, and is left alone. Perhaps the idea of these two brothers burying their father is the beginning of the story we need today. We've just witnessed the start of another set of peace talks in Washington. Maybe the sons burying Abraham is a reminder that peace is possible. As Jews, we need to recognize that Roadblocks to peace continue even in our Jewish community. Some of the repeated debates we have don't contribute to moving peace forward, and we often continue having the same old arguments. Most Jews love the state of Israel. Our reasons might differ, as do our views of how Israel should act. Still, I believe that we all yearn to see an Israel that lives at peace with her neighbors. We want Israel to be the prophetic light unto the nations. That being said, I've grown concerned about recent internal debates in our Jewish community. Many have morphed into a series of stalemated conversations where people are talking, but it's a rehash of the same old old argument One such stalemate occurred this summer in the public forums of the New York Times Book Review, Commentary Magazine, and WHYY's program, Radio Times, created and produced here in Philadelphia. The stalemate played itself out in a public spat when Peter Beinart, senior political writer at the blog The Daily Beast, and an associate professor of of journalism, and political science at the City University of New York published an article on June 10, 2010, entitled The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment. In this article, he states, 
particularly the younger generations. Fewer and fewer American Jewish liberals are Zionists. Fewer and fewer American Jewish Zionists are liberal. One reason is that the leading institutions of American Jewry have refused to foster, indeed, have actively opposed a Zionism that challenges Israel's behavior in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and toward its own citizens. And later in the article, Beinart gives this warning about the current state of Zionism in America. Beinart says, quote, Comfortable Zionism has become a moral abdication. The idea of comfortable Zionism and being reflective on what has transpired in Israel was too much for one Noah Pollock who published a response in Commentary magazine pointing out the peace process as a liberal agenda he proceeded to attack Beinart and all liberals for oper- responses after Operation Cast Lead in 2008 and 2009. He wrote, Instead, talk of war crimes filled the airwaves, investigations were demanded, arrest warrants for Israeli officials issued, and now Peter Beinart says he must question Zionism because civilians were killed in Gaza. Carried away by his own moral indignation, he never asks two fundamental questions. Who started the war, and why was it fought from civilian areas? The liberal Zionists, when it has mattered most, have defected. It has been easier to join the critics of Israel who are fellow liberals than to appear jingoistic and tribal by defending the hated Zionists. Following the printing of these articles, the two authors were interviewed on the radio. I listened with an intent ear because I was expecting a real battle of ideologies. What happened next was something I could not imagine. It was the most bizarre interview I've ever heard. While they spoke about Israel, the conversation had little to do with any divergent ideas about Israel, or what they should do. In an ironic twist, they agreed on about 98% of everything the other said. So the non-debate debate happened on the radio. It was as if a boxing match were held, and the opponents pulled their stools into the middle of the ring and thumb-wrestled with their gloves on. Yes, the words Israel and Zionism came up in the conversation. But if these two men had such disparate points of view, how could they have so much agreement? In the past, we have had episodes where the internal debates of the Jewish community became so heated that they served the enemies we were trying to survive or defeat. If this is the level of discord created over minor differences. I believe it calls for a new approach, and in biblical times, such approaches almost always came from the words of the prophets. What did a prophetic challenge to the status quo look like in biblical times? The prophet Isaiah observed and often blasted the events of his day. 
The northern kingdom of Israel was making plans for war and relying on the chief's arms trader of the day, Egypt, to supply its armaments. Isaiah saw this as dangerous, for he felt that either Egypt was weak or unreliable as an ally, and the prophet leveled criticism. In the 31st chapter of Isaiah, we read, and it's much more a criticism of the Israelites than the Egyptians, but still they're mentioned. We read, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, and rely on horses, and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek Adonai. Even though Israel's survival has too often depended on her military strength, the strength of Israel must be more than her military might. When I call for a new prophetic vision, it does not mean that we should ignore the wrongs done in the past, but it does place peace as the priority to stop future wrongs and violence. Isaac and Ishmael could have argued the whole way to Abraham's burial. But the Torah never reports to us that one turned the, uh, to the other and said, Dad loved you more. We sing about turning our swords into plowshares and pruning hooks. This is from our re- religious prophetic tradition that we learn that there is a time for war and a time for peace. Prophets were always on point because they were often outside of the mainstream, outside of the potential deadlocked conversations of the wise in their day. When Israel faces her enemies, will she, like those in Isaiah's time, continue to return to Egypt, the old way, the paradigm that claims safety only through military superiority? Or will we listen to our religious tradition that holds lessons about both war and peace? Our paradigm must become prophetic or our problem will not change. Regardless of the way each of us sees the solution in the Middle East, Without a prophetic message as the backbone, we will all too quickly find ourselves back in the stalemates that have stopped other attempts to find peace. It will take prophetic vision and courage like Isaiah's to stand up and say that war horses and questionable allies are not part of the solution. The solution lies between the two parties in creating a peace in which the other has faith. Prophets, not military experts, deal in faith. Israel and the world face the possibility of a nuclear Iran. The basis of the conversation has been how the world might keep this country from obtaining such a devastating weapon. The pundits speak past each other, and their rhetoric ends any imagination that could lead to a potential solution outside of military conflict. Iran, for its part, needs to be feared and admired and feared. For no other reason 
then it has used a game of cat and mouse against the world's most powerful countries. Like a master diplomatic tactician, Iran has followed the pattern of deciding which country from the third world to use as the mediation country. You see, Iran knows the formula of world response. First, media outrage. Second, a bickering security council. Third, some possible new sanction. They count on us not being prophetic. They rely on us to keep the paradigm as is. And they want this stagnation because in the end, it serves them. If our goal is to prevent a nuclear Iran, then we must seek a new and prophetic response. If the paradigm changes, the foe Iran will confront that change too. What if the Prime Minister of Israel took a page out of Ahmadinejad's book? And just like Ahmadinejad, just like he sent a letter to President Obama, Bibi were to pen a letter to the Iranian president seeking to make peace with Iran. That would challenge the paradigm. It might even be prophetic. Recently, there's been much discussion in Haaretz that Iran hates the idea of an Israeli-Palestinian peace because it would make Iran more irrelevant. Both of these actions take courage and each would impact on the conversations that almost start at deadlock. If our paradigm became prophetic, the problem and those that support the current situation would have to change. Yitzhak Rabin, Zeker Sadiq Lifracha, was a man who changed the paradigm, at least for a little while. By agreeing to meet under the Oslo Agreement with Yasser Arafat, Rabin changed the paradigm. He shocked everyone. He shocked the opposing parties in Israel. For just as only Nixon could go to China, few Israeli politicians could have enough standing to meet Arafat and expect to survive politically. Rabin had defeated several Arab armies during his military service. Thus, he commanded their respect. Arafat now faced a new enemy, and its name was peace. The paradigm changed, and all of a sudden the conflict that made Arafat so relevant was in danger of going away. Israel, during those days, became prophetic, and an inspiration because the prophet in Rabin made old answers irrelevant. In doing so, he changed the problem that stalemated the conflict for decades. Rabin knew that our paradigm must become prophetic, or our problem will not change. This changed the way people saw Israel during those 26 months that followed. Israel rose. After Rabin's assassination, the prophetic disappeared, and the series of events that followed pushed the debate from the inspirational to the expected, from the visionary to the stationary, from the possibilities to the stagnant and intractable. Where will this change come from? We have to stop waiting for it to arrive like a messiah. 
we need to move the responsibility inside ourselves. This is one of the ways that we begin to change the paradigm. And we, you and me, are the change. You know, I found this in a modern artist's charge to our generation. It comes from the songwriter John Legend in his song, If You're Out There. Oh, I was looking for a song to sing. I searched for a leader, but the leader was me. We were looking for the world to change. We can be heroes. We need to believe and trust that our voices can contribute to the prophetic chorus we need today. Our voices can create the paradigm that will see the seed of peace replanted. We must be those who stop waiting around for somebody else to do it. A prophetic vision, a new paradigm calls us to question all the expected answers. You and I need to stop settling for the analysis presented by experts of history and seek those who give new answers and fresh ideas based less on historical analysis and more what the possibilities of the future could bring. Prophetic leaders can be identified because they speak about solutions and work for those possibilities based on hopes and dreams. They view the status quo as we would a war horse, old, antiquated, a relic. Aspiring to the prophetic was always daunting, but we've had enough easy answers that have led us to circular conversations and these conversations embolden our enemies. The charge that we need to leave with is twofold. First, if we care about Israel, we need to stop having the same conversations that lead to deadlock, even those conversations between proclaimed experts. Discussions like this waste time and further convince our enemies that we lack answers. Our internal debate is good when it leads to new ideas, but when it leads us back to old answers, this emboldens our enemies. The second is that, and this is going to be much more difficult, we must open our often disappointed hearts to the possibility of a prophetic way forward. As difficult as it was, to see Rabin start the process and be killed for doing so, if we value what he started, we must strive and drive ourselves to believe again. We need a leader who calls us to a prophetic possibility and will need the leaders in us to make real the possibility of peace. If we do this, it will be a gift for children of Israelis. It will be a gift for children of Palestinians. It will be a gift for children of Syrians. It will be a gift for children of Lebanese. It might even be a gift for the children of Iranians. So that the words of the prophet may be made real, that all may dwell under their vine and fig tree, that none shall make them Afraid. May you have a sweet and good new year.